hospitality is its own beast. Number one, you're only as good as your team. And I would say that in, in any business, of course, but I think it's so critical in hospitality because, you know, everyone has some sort of interaction with the guest, whether it's the chef in the kitchen who's, you know, or someone that's plating the food or the dishwasher, or of course, your front of house, you really need people that care. And again, this is not everyone served a purpose and, and did a great right. job. I'm fond of everyone that was there. But I think one of the things that I've learned is to care less about experience and certainly less about nightlife experience. I don't even look for people with nightlife experience. I'd rather have someone with restaurant experience. But really more than anything is that it you, you can't someone could have all the experience, hospitality experience in the world. But if they don't care right? If they don't care, ultimately, that is going to show through. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. All right, welcome to another edition of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Zach Bush, co-founder of Madroom Hospitality, here with us. I appreciate you joining us, Zach. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate you carving out the time to uh, to talk to me, Steve. So what can I do for you and the listeners today? Let's, let's <laughs> well, chat. Well, let's start. We would always love to know, how did you get started in this beautiful industry hospitality? What was your first job? it's a bit of an interesting story is that, um, so I graduated from college in the year 2000 from Emory university. I went to business school there and I came down and I immediately started working for my family's waste and recycling business, um, that I had really worked in since I was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And it didn't take me long to realize that, you know, I obviously had a wonderful opportunity there, a family business, a good job, the ability uh, to work with my brother who had arrived there three years before me, um, you know, to to really take ownership and build this business and help make it grow. Um, it didn't take long for me to realize that um, creatively, though, I wasn't really satisfied socially. Um, you know, a lot of early mornings um, and late, late days, you know, garbage isn't uh, the first thing that everyone thinks about. But certainly, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity. So believe it or not, I was like, I, I got to figure something out. So at first, the first thing I did is um, I taught myself to DJ. And wow. before, yeah, I know, I know. And, and literally before I knew it, this is many, many moons ago. And before um, anyone knew it, I was DJing uh, in like the hip hop room, a club I'm going to date myself at the time it was called goddess. 
And who was running Goddess at that time was a gentleman, uh, I'm, I'm sure your listeners have heard of him, named Dave Grutman. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. So many, many moons ago. And I was actually hired at the time by the promoters. Long story short, the promoters didn't pay me. I realized everyone that was coming was like, you know, I, I was bringing a big group of people. At that time, DJs didn't get all the love from, from the girls on the side of the booth. And I wanted to be on the other side of the booth. So literally after like, I don't know, four or five weeks of that, um, I teamed up with my best girlfriend, a, a, a girl named Erica Freshman. She's one of the co-founders of Three Points. Mm -hmm. Now, this is many, many years ago. Yep. And we basically started throwing parties on Miami Beach. And we were one of the first to do parties at hotels. Um, the very first party we did, that, that, and then it became well known for many, many years, was Friday nights at the Townhouse Hotel rooftop. Yeah, um, I love that place. Yeah, it became extremely popular. Was written up in GQ, um, and literally, I, I that that party went on for for God forever. And then from there, we started. You know, and what was interesting about that is that we wanted to do like a happy hour, uh, but of course, uh, we were successful in creating a happy hour. But it was a Miami Beach, South Beach happy hour where we could get people out at ten instead yeah. of you know midnight and one nine nine ten o'clock. What and year it, was that? What year were you running? Uh, running that was probably in around. If I'm, I'm still. If I had to guess, it was probably around like 2002. Oh, you know, I 2000. Probably, I was probably there because I was. Yeah, I mean, it, literally, it was. It did very well, and then from there, we really kind of built out a niche uh, dealing with hotels. Um, we did Thursdays at Skybar, you know, which was mm -hmm. where we were the first people to work there. Sundays at the Delano, and you know, kind of took it from there, and uh, so that really gave me the 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 feel on what it takes on how to market and promote. And at that time, it was real interesting. We were one of the first people to use email marketing on the beach. Back then, it was all people passing out flyers. We, we, we didn't do that. Um, and so it's just interesting to see how it changed from, you know, flyers to email to now, you know, that then it was Friendster and MySpace. And, you know, now like uh, TikTok, which, I, you know, I, I don't use um, just so so to see it all all change. And then long story short, as I started to get older and I couldn't burn the candle at both ends, I kind of had to step back from the marketing and promotions job, which paid very well. Mm -hmm. um, it was a great way to meet people socially, network as well. So it really changed my life, so to speak. And, and the, the reason I tell that story is because, you know, I had to step away from that. Erica kept doing it on her own and I had to focus on my quote unquote real job. You know, as you get older, you, you, you become more responsible, you can't burn the candle at both ends. And then literally, you know, one thing led to another in about 2000, gosh, it was probably like 2009 or 10, mm -hmm. Paul Fuller, who's, who's my, one of my, no, not one of my, my best friend and uh, business partner now is a real estate developer or, or was at that time, still is, but primarily. And he had really, you know, become a pioneer in Little Havana. And at that time, uh, he uncovered the history of all and chain with a local historian, Dr. Paul George. Who's, yeah, I love him. Uh, He's great. Yeah, exactly. A treasure in Miami. Bill calls me up, I'm, you know, and he says, Zach, I have this great property. It was ball and chain. Look at all the history. It was amazing. We got to bring it back to life. And while it sounded amazing, I just, you know, and he knew I had the nightlife background at that point, marketing sounded amazing. There was no way I could really do it. I was, you know, working with my family. So mm -hmm. fast forward, you know, to 2011 or 12, my brother and I had an exit from the waste and recycling business. I always say it was not a uh, go buy a yacht and a penthouse type money. It right. was someone offers you a dollar five for something worth a dollar. 
you think long and hard in an industry that was becoming more and more challenging, both with regulations, both with the, and additionally, the giant companies really controlling price uh, in, in a legal way, but just, you know, it just, it became very challenging. And so we made the uh, decision at that time to exit that business. And we were always going to work and, and, you know, it was not certainly, like I said, all right, we're good now. We had, you know, mm -hmm. had to figure out what was next. And at that time, Bill Fuller came back to me with the ball and chain idea. And it was really kind of now or never. And so you've had conversations with my brother before. Um, you know, he, he's a very bright guy. Business school went to Wash U in, in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, garbage trucks were very linear. You know, you, you charge X, you fill up a route, you have enough money, you buy another truck. You know, hospitality, you can pro forma all you want, right? And um, there's just no way. Yes, you can make smart decisions, definitely. And you can set yourself up for success. Right. But at the end of the day, nothing is foolproof, right? You, you, I mean, you, you know that better than anyone. So it was a little bit of a challenge to get him on board. Uh, certainly at that time, there were no new venues in, in Cayocho and in Little Havana that were really driving new audiences to the neighborhood. The neighborhood, you know, Bill Fuller, you know, as someone that grew up in Miami, I'd heard of Little Havana, but I had never really spent a lot of time there. And Bill had really immersed himself in the community. He, in fact, himself lived there for many years. And once he brought, you know, showed me, you know, and we would start going there for lunch and he would give me tours of the neighborhood. You know, it's really like this little darling of a neighborhood and it's only grown, but but the neighborhood is so special because of the community. And I know this is a very long drive. No, I love it. Story, I love it. But um, it really tells how I got there. And so from mm -hmm. all in chain, um, I actually got married there before we opened. I feel like that kind of blessed us a little bit, so to speak. And then we really kind of hit the ground running there. We weren't exactly sure. We, we knew, you know, we wanted it to be affordable and authentic and accessible. Those were the three A's that we focused on. Um, and we wanted the live music. And so we really just kind of built slowly into, you know, seven day a week live music. This is and programming and the whole thing. And we really kind of hit the ground running. And that was really how I got on the ownership side for my first venture. Obviously, I've always loved hospitality and had a initial introduction into the marketing promotion side, which is certainly important because we say that the best decorations in a room are the guests and a full right. venue. I love um, so that's certainly a big piece to the puzzle. And then, you know, with my partners, Bill and Ben, between the three of us, you know, we think we're all great at, at different things. And Bill, you know, I think I mentioned, you know, they're even though Ben's my blood brother, they're, they're both my brothers. Bill and I go back 30 something years. I think that's really been the recipe for our success. And so one thing led to another. And, and here we are. Well, I love it. Look, you've, I love that journey and the arc of that story. And I want to hit on a couple of pieces because. Sure. I love, you know, I'm born and raised here, just like you are. And I think we grew up in the same neighborhood. Like we grew up down by the Pinecrest, you know, yes. area, right? Just, so what, it just wasn't called Pinecrest back then, but no, <laughs> right. Down, way down. So, I never hung out around Coyote. You always heard about it. And Correct. maybe it was like the festival a time. Correct. Right? Um, same with me. Right. And so I want to get back to your buddy. Will calls you. He's like, Hey, ball and chain. I found this place. Did you go take a look at it with him right away? What was that so, first time you walked in? So the first time when he called me, when I was still with the you know waste and recycling business, you know I, I was flattered, and obviously I've always known Bill to be a visionary and and a creative genius, so to speak. Um, and also he's one of those people that when he gets excited about something, you get excited because I always say that there's dreamers and doers in this world, and it's nice when you have someone that's both, or you can surround yourself with people that are both that see stuff that in a different way that you and I might not ever see it. And um, so the first time I didn't really 
have too much interest because it just wasn't going to happen. It was, you know, it was, we were a small family waste and recycling business. And the idea of me leaving, number one, I wouldn't do that to my family. They needed me and, and you know, Ben needed me. And this, the same token, you know, you know what it's like when you're an entrepreneur, like you, you don't just leave. And certainly when it's a family business. Um, and then the second time, you know, Ben and I had looked at all sorts of different businesses, what we were going to do. And one of the challenges we were having is that all we really knew was garbage trucks and waste and recycling. And the only other thing that I knew was how to throw a good party, right? right. Uh, and so when this opportunity came, it just seemed right. And then as Bill started taking me to the neighborhood, showing me the history that, that, that him and Dr. Paul George had uncovered, I was blown away. Like we found the old, uh, we'd found the old ads of like when Billie Holiday played there, you know, Count oh, wow. Basie, Chet Baker. So like, you know, Miami people always talk about history, but it's not necessarily always preserved as it should be. And, you know, Bill is just marvelous at that stuff. And so, um, you know, I was able to get Ben on board. And then once Ben was on board, he was on board and it was just magic. Yes, we went to see the site. We went to see his vision. And, you know, like when you walked in there, what did it look like when you walked in that first? Well, so Ball and Chain originally existed from 1935 to 1957. When it shut its doors in 1957, it had become several different things. And, and, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to get the order right, but it had become a furniture store at one time. It had become another bar at one time. So, you know, it was just, it was still when he took the keys back from the last tenant, you know, it had the infrastructure of the old ball and chain, so to speak, but you would never have known it unless you compared it with like some old drawings and, and the whole thing. And so the idea was, let's say ball and chain never closed in 1957. And it kept up with the times, but still stayed authentic and true and real. What would it look like today? And so literally that's what was created that, that everyone sees when, you know, they come and visit us now. Yeah. That's how I felt when I walked in the first time, I was like, wow, I feel like this has been here since that time, which was so, magic, right? So yeah. what, what did it look? Was it a furniture store? Was it a restaurant when you guys walked well, in? The it was a furniture store and then, and then it was like a bar. I, I couldn't even tell you what the bar was called when he took the keys Got back. It the tenant i did know at one time i'm blanking um but as he laid out you know and there was really cool stuff there was original murals on the wall when we peeled back the walls of like a ball and chain so one cool. of the coolest things that we found there uh buried in the wall was um an old ball and chain sign and it was basically used to cover their uh electrical panel so now we have we have a, a picture hanging over the electrical panel, but behind the picture is we took this original sign and it's also hanging on our electrical panel. That's so you cool. Can't, you can't see it, but we know it's there and it's very cool. So we found some really cool historic stuff. Even in old, yeah, we didn't find it there, but I was able to source it, you know, on eBay, an old matchbook from Ball and Chain from the 1940s. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, it's just been. It's been a dream come true. I've always loved jazz and live music, and that was kind of a big part. It's a, it's a part of me that's there. There's, there's other than my family, you know, that's one of the things I'm most proud of in this world. So I want to give now, you found the spot, you start making the plans, now you're getting closer to opening, right? What is that like opening something? That's something I've never done, right? So I talked well, to Ben Potts about this with his Beaker and Gray, and he was like, just, man, it was like a year of stuff we didn't know was going to happen. What was it like for you all? Because that's not where... Well, I can tell you even not that it's more important than an opening, but even more panic is my mm -hmm. wedding was there. Right. So I was literally freaking out because I had never opened a restaurant or bar. Mm -hmm. um, so as you know, like whatever can go wrong kind of does go wrong, especially your first time around. You make mistakes, right? You got to learn from them. We all make mistakes. So I was very 
panicky because even like, I don't even think we had like the soda machines like until like the 11th hour. And obviously there's no canceling a wedding for a venue not being ready. Yeah, they're coming either way. Right. So that was the first mission is getting it ready for, it was very stressful. It was some, you know, it's also admittedly, like I had never been on that side of it, you know, from everything from furniture to the sound system, lighting, working bathrooms, you know, stuff breaks that isn't supposed to break. Furniture doesn't fit as, the, as if it was exactly supposed to fit. So there's a ton of audibles, which, you know, listen, you got to be able to make audibles in any business, but um, with the stress of a wedding and then the opening. And also, you know, we wanted it to be perfect because we had been advertising that, we, you know, we'd created a good buzz that Ball and Chain was coming to the neighborhood. And, you know, there was lots of good teasers and this was going to be the first sneak peek that anyone got to it. And not that it was like some crazy big wedding. I think it was only like 200 people. It wasn't, you know, still a good size, but nothing yeah. like, wasn't like opening a restaurant where you have tastings and this and that. So we kind of, in that regard, we had a little bit of an advantage because we got a little bit of a dry run with real guests and real guest experience. And it was cool because I was able to bring in, you know, some incredible bartenders, mixologists that, you know, you wouldn't normally have at a wedding, so to speak. After the wedding, you know, we, we, we saw what worked, what didn't work, called some additional audibles. And I think like two weeks later, we had like our official grand opening. Um, and at that time- What do you remember from that, that grand opening? I'm always that, you know, you've worked, you've got this vision, you put the vision in place, you've got the furniture, everything's there. You've tested it with your own wedding, which is very brave. Right. Well, <laughs> no. well, I knew no matter what, my wife would still love me. So yeah. I was, it was good in that part right, right there. Yeah, so exactly. The doors open and you all are standing there. Is it like a flood of people coming in because from your promoter? Well, no, days? it's interesting. So unlike most, I don't want to say most hospitalities, but unlike, you know, most nightlife driven venues, you know, one of the things that drew us to the community was Cayocho gets a massive amount of tourists during the day. So we really created a daytime experience that I think initially, you know, moved slowly because the tourists weren't used to it, but they saw this vibrant, brand new looking, I mean, brand new venue, old, old, authentic looking. And we had the misters and, you know, it was very inviting and the doors open. We didn't have daytime music at that time. No one in the neighborhood had daytime music at that time. And slowly but surely, and, and, you know, it just started working. And then I think originally to start, we were only open Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. I've always believed that um, unless you know that you're going to have a crowd every night, you're better off to do Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I've always believed in programming backwards. You got to start with Saturday, make sure Saturday's successful. Friday, make sure Friday's successful. And then Thursday. And then after that, we literally moved backwards Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, and then Sunday to get to the seven week programming. And then, you know, the neighborhood continued and continues to thrive. And then we made the decision to start offering daytime music, which took some convincing um, because music is expensive. Mm -hmm. And it's just been real interesting because it was one of those things that we knew was not going to make money. We just knew it at, at that time, especially. And then you fast forward now to, let's say, five years, you know, even though, you know, some of it was lost with COVID and whatever. Now, like almost everyone has music during the daytime. That's amazing, right? It's a good. It's like the amenity you have to have to create that ambiance where people will just hang out and, and remember it. 
Yeah, and one of the other, one of the other things I'm reminded of as you and I are speaking that is interesting too is I grew up one one of my you know my father was a huge influence is a huge influence in my life one of the things that he introduced me to was jazz music and our family so from a, from a very uh, young age we listened to jazz and I remember I used to ask him to change the radio station in the car and he'd be like nah man this is this is cool see if you can follow the tune and now I found myself doing the same thing to my children who are probably cursing me in their head you know wanting to hear yeah. what or whatever and like, bring back dj zach what exactly exactly, exactly um so and, and why i mentioned that as i recall is that um there my family used to take us to new york and you know, the village vanguard and all these great places you know to, to where we listen and respect the jazz and so at that time you know and ball and chain had a rich history in jazz with, with incredible jazz artists playing there we knew we wanted to honor that tradition with live jazz at that time in miami we were and i i, I truly believe that we were the first to kind of help shift the jazz time to be more accessible. We did jazz at that time from six to nine, or and then it ended up being from six to 10. And at that time, no one in Miami did jazz that early. It was always like late. And I remember thinking that my dad always complained that like, why do they have this jazz? I mean, it doesn't start till nine, 10 at night. It's too late for me, da, 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 da. And so now you see a lot more jazz that was always here, but played at earlier times. And I really think that Ball and Chain was one of the first movers to help kind of shift that from like late night to like, you know, a little bit earlier. Um, so it's like the only place I can remember were like the Van Dyke and Jazzed, and those were always right. like late, later right. Night, late, right? late, late, you know, and, and the fact that we're able to honor that tradition from the original Ball and Chain, it's just something that that's, was super important to us then and, and still is now. So looking back now, over the five-year history you have, or more almost now, was there something you would have changed at the beginning, now knowing what you know now, or were you say, you know, we did it the right way? Um, that's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. I think that that I don't have any regrets. Let's put it that way. What I would say is that one of the most important things that I've learned, you know, and I had a business background prior, but um, hospitality is is its own beast. Number one, you're only as good as your team. And I would say that in, in any business, of course, but I think it's so critical in hospitality because, you know, everyone has some sort of interaction with the guest, whether it's the chef in the kitchen who's, you know, or someone that's plating the food or the dishwasher, or of course, your front of house, you really need people that care. I think originally I probably made some, and again, this is not, everyone served a purpose and, and did a great right. job. I'm fond of everyone that was there, but I think one of the things that I've learned is to care less about experience and certainly less about nightlife experience. I don't even look for people with nightlife experience. I'd rather have someone with restaurant experience, but really more than anything is that it, you, you can't, someone could have all the experience, hospitality experience in the world, but if they don't care, right? If they don't care, ultimately that is going to show through. And so there's no science to it, but we try, my team tries, and we have, I think right now we have the best team that I've ever had. I'm super proud of it. It's proud of them. They are all so engaged and they really care. Of course they make mistakes. I make mistakes, right? Um, but you have to be able to, certainly for me as, as a leader, to own them, and to, you know, you have to be able to say my bad or I'm sorry, or you were right, I was wrong, mm -hmm. or I didn't handle this ideally in, 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 this, in, in the heat of the moment, what could I have done better? And so I think, you, you know, one of the things that I, that, that I wish I would have done sooner rather than later is really identify that caring attribute, whatever it is. You know, I think that that really has a tremendous impact on really probably could be applied to any business, but certainly in hospitality, how high you can soar.
That's great advice. I think, you know, you hit on a lot of things in there. So it'd be great for people listening, just hearing about that. You truly have to care in the business. If you don't, you feel it, right? Because you, you see it. You, you're not yeah, I can't, I can't teach someone to smile when a guest leaves. And you want it to be genuine, not like, I oh, have a great day, right? People see through that. But if you really care, um, if you really care, like when you mess, like you can, you, there, there's, and I'm sorry to interrupt. You, no, you, I love it. You can really, um, if your team is engaged, you can recover from just about anything. And, you know, anything bad that ha whether it's a spill or this or, you know, you didn't have the table ready when you were supposed to or they brought the wrong food or what you can really recover from anything if people feel that you genuinely care. And it's not something you can teach. You either care or you don't. So I'll, no, you see I'll it. pass it back to you. Listen, but you're on it. You see it with the top hotel companies and mm -hmm. they'll, they'll, that's the first thing they check. Right? Is what do you actually care? Will you be genuinely nice to somebody and do, will you empathize with somebody? And if you don't, you're out. You, you don't make it past that first interview. Right. So you're, you're, you're hitting it on the head. And I think in part to that, also, one of the things that I've learned through the years, unlike my prior business, is that in hospital, not that, you know, again, it could be applied to any business, but it certainly didn't really wasn't as applied as much in my waste and recycling firm, is that we try to empower all of our team members to make decisions, right? So that someone doesn't need to chase down a manager who then needs to take a floor manager and needs to chase down a GM. You know, we, we try to, you know, roadmap. Of course, we don't have everything in our book, but we try to roadmap and give them the power to make a decision on what's best for the guest. And if they can justify it, right, within reason, it's fine. And if they did something wrong, that's okay too, but let's learn about it for next time. So I think that is really also affects the overall experience of of your guests i agree so let's jump back into now ball and chain you've got sure. it it's a success it's going well and you're now starting to grow right so mad room hospitality was that always the name or did you create that once ball and chain was open we created it once ball and chain was open because the, there there was an original uh vip room at ball and chain uh mm -hmm. and it was called the mad room so that's where cool. it came from and so, you know, now Ball and Chain does not have a VIP room. It's it's for everyone, and we just thought that it fit appropriately. So, yeah, like you said, we 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 grew. We we well, we wanted to. We we didn't know we were growing. I mean, we knew the business was doing well. Right. We felt that it was the first time that Ben, Bill, and myself had worked together. And of course, anytime you have new partners, brothers, family, closest of friends, there's always hiccups, right? And you learn what each other's strengths and weaknesses are and how people respond in different situations. So that comes with its own challenges, even though they're both like family to me. And we were ready to, what can we sink our teeth into next? And so being in the neighborhood and also even prior to me being in the neighborhood, I have memories for years, randomly here and there, we would go to this little authentic Mexican joint called Taqueria Sol Mexicano. It had been there since the 1980s. I was born in the late 70s and it was, you know, originally run by two cousins from Chicago who moved down here and they created this incredible authentic Mexican experience. And we had gone there for years as, as patrons as we thought it was some of the best and most authentic Mexican food in, in town in, in, in South Florida. When we knew that there was an opportunity where the owners were looking to exit, we jumped at that opportunity. We felt that it was accretive to our brand, authentic experiences. And even though we didn't know anything about Mexican food, we That's knew the next it, question. No, it's true, right? Yeah. So, you know, like we took many trips. So one of the, that you could probably do a whole podcast on in itself. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I'll spare you here. But we part two down the road. Yeah, yeah, I'll spare you. But basically it's really interesting because you love, I, you know, I love the food, right? We, we love the food. 
We love the experience. So yeah, let's make sense. How can we come in and make sense of the business? Okay. So we made sense of the business. We thought that we could help make it work. We thought we could help make it run better. And so you really learn because of course, chefs and even operators, you have ideas of, oh, we could do this. We could do that. But really, first of all, we didn't even announce new ownership for well over a year. Okay. I think it was closer to, to two years because we had to dig in. We, you know, there's no ego, right? I want people to enjoy the same food and restaurant that, that we were enjoying for many right. years. Yeah. We took many trips to Mexico. We take, you know, we tasted and learned more than I ever thought I would learn about Mexican cuisine. And we, we slowly, gradually started introducing things very slowly um, that we thought we could improve. And many of them were taken, people loved them. And mm -hmm. many of them, the loyal guests knew right away something had changed. And I tell a story. The best way I can sum this up is this. So they did everything, you know, uh, number one, we, we converted the kitchen to um, a scratch kitchen where everything is made from scratch. Uh, they had most stuff that was making from scratch, but not everything. But one of the things was, it was they, they, they served the chips and the salsa. And their salsa was, for lack of a better word, you know, it was really just from a can, right? Nothing, nothing. It wasn't directly from a can, but it was not nothing special, so to speak. Yes. So we changed it, right? And people wanted to know what the heck did you do to the sauce? The sauce was amazing. Why did you change it? So to this day, now we still serve their original sauce. Now we also serve it with our own, but we, you know, but it became very crucial that people loved it. They got used to it and it is very good, but you know, like if you think you can make something better or more fresh, that's, that's right. Yeah. Too. But you know, so there are some misses, right? So like we thought, and and the, you have to listen to your guests like, OK, they want it. We're, we, we're here for them. Mm -hmm. So I, I always tell that story because it's real interesting. You know, unlike opening a restaurant from scratch, you already have a base of, of guests and clientele that have been coming there for years. You don't want to alienate them. If they've been coming for the uh, the, the Al Pastor taco for, for years and they love it, who are you to change it? Right. So, you know, and then we were, you know, we, we made some changes gradually and and. Then I think it was like literally two years into it when we announced the opening of Los Altos upstairs, the, the speakeasy where you could also order food, but also, you know, have amazing cocktails, heavy and mezcal and just some really great drinks. That's when we announced, you know, that we had taken over the restaurant, but it was years before. That's why I didn't realize it. Cause when you announced it, I was like, wow, I had no idea. And you guys were there for right. a while. So it's cool. Yes. I'm yeah. glad to hear that part of the story. And now yeah. you're continuing that right now. You're continuing the growth it sounds like from talking yeah about well we had so both myself and ben and bill fuller grew up going to my Kai, very very famous uh venue here uh in broward county obviously mm -hmm. um and for your for your listeners that that might not have heard of it give it give it a google search it is it is, it is arguably one of the most famous tiki restaurants in the world uh the thornton family's had it for you know i think god i don't don't kill me i think almost 80 years and so we had the opportunity to come in and and so it was always on our radar bill and i used to talk about one day how cool it would be to own the maikai and so um before even knowing it was for sale you guys were talking oh about yeah it. this is i mean we would talk about this when we were literally in, in college like right wow. like, it was like going back 20 years Bill used to, Bill and I used to talk about this stuff when we lived together. So like when we had an opportunity to, you know, unfortunately there was basically pre COVID um, without getting into too many details, there was, there was like, let's call it like a, a, a pro, like an explosion of sorts in, in the kitchen. Right. And so basically um, it caused a lot of damage in the kitchen. No one was there. No one, you know, no one was injured or anything like that. that but basically at that time, the Thornton family, you know, was really looking for partners that could come in and help not only make sure that Mai Kai got reopened properly, but also 
honor the legacy of the incredible family that um, really created magic over there and really made it an institution. When we found out that Maikai was for sale, I think at that time there were many developers that wanted to come in and just wanted the land. It's on, you know, several acres up there on Federal Highway. And so really to the credit again of, of Bill Fuller, he was able to put together a deal for, you know, that really spoke uh, to his real estate experience and then for us to come in and and operate the the restaurant and so it's a dream come true we expect that to go you know to come back to life in you know about six or seven months from now six to eight months i'll say uh, mm -hmm. i am just beyond excited i'm beyond excited to you know have a footprint in broward um because i think ball and chain is is iconic in its own way in dade county i think you know to have maikai in broward county again really speaks to our brand we're very careful about what type of ventures to take you know where of course we want to grow and be successful but we also are very selective in the opportunities that that we sign on to whether it's ownership management agreements what have you and so we are just elated to be part of that legacy and i think that uh People are going to be blown away. And then anyone who has seen what we've done at Ball and Chain, where we stay super authentic and true to our roots, that's what we're planning on doing there. You know, of course, we think that we can make some changes to make the experience better. But the Thornton family did a phenomenal job for many, many years, and they're still on board as our partners there. So, awesome. yeah, so we are very excited about what's to come. And then there's other stuff, of course, which isn't public, which I can't discuss yet in both Dade and Broward that we are just super excited about. I've never been more excited about um, what's to come for Mad Room than I am right now. And so I think that's one of the advantages of, of COVID and, and some of the issues that, that we hit and some of the you know other issues that we've had in the city of Miami, not, not to you know get into any of that stuff, is that it's really forced us to, um, it's very easy to be comfortable when, when, when your restaurants and venues are doing well. And um, it's very easy to, you know, to, to say, I don't need anything else on my plate. Um, just because, you know, life happens, you're busy. This work we, cho we, we choose is 24 seven. And with families, I know you have a family. I myself have an amazing wife and three kids. It's, it's, it's taxing at times, but it's really forced us to um, follow our passion and, and seek projects that we might not have otherwise, you know, really sought out. Yeah. Well, you know, one, I just wanted to say thanks because you're saving some of these historic places and bringing them back to life. Like, you know, I was just walking through the Delano this weekend that they were oh. selling all the pieces off. I bought a couple of mementos for myself just because I worked in there and you DJed there. It's like so yeah. many cool stories. Yeah, man. Totally. I, I get it. I, I went through on, on, on one of the websites I saw where they had like images of some of the stuff and like memories came flooding back. You know, that that you can't talk about Miami Beach without talking about the Delano. Yeah, it brought everything back. So I'm just proud that you are doing that for our city and for South Florida. You're saving these places that people have made decades and decades of memories in which i think is just one of the coolest things but i also you. touched on staying creative and i was shocked to read that you were making or designing and creating children's books too and you know i know we're a little long on time but i just want to hear how you started and getting into that because sure so for a little bit on the news i remember seeing like i didn't know you and i was like wow right this, guy, this is awesome so i mean look, you're a dad. I'm a dad. I never set out to write. It was never, oh, I want to write a children's book. And then my, my son was born, uh, who's now seven. I was overcome with emotion. And, and, you know, I'd always heard, you don't know what it's like to your parent yourself and whatever. And yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. I get it. And then like you bring life to another human. And I found myself mesmerized. I found myself literally blown away. And granted, I've always been in touch with my emotions, so to speak, but just in a way that my cup was was overflowing with with love. 
And I felt that I had to get it out on paper. And so at that time we would read to my children. I still do almost every night or have them read to us now. And there were no real, every time there was like a loving care, like parent figure, it was always a mom. And so I felt compelled. And I will tell you this, that um, God, that's a whole nother podcast too, but, but writing a children's book and getting it published through traditional outlets I swear to you, was harder than opening a bar or restaurant because there's no linear path. Everyone is the judge. It's like of your work. Um, You know, I really, I have a lot of friends that are musicians and it gave me like a new respect. Like these people, like what I did was like create one song. These people put out albums and it's just, it's, it's, and so I was just moved for, for, I've done 20 years of nightlife favors for people. I've never really asked for favors. And when that book launched, I asked for every favor in the book. Um, because really it wasn't a financial venture at all. I just wanted to share this piece of me. And I was fortunate enough, literally, I would say three years after I wrote the first draft, I held the first copy that was traditionally published. And then since then, you know, made for me, it became a national bestseller, which was beyond my, you know, hopes and and dreams. Uh, My kids are, of course, now sick of it, but, you know, I've been reading it to them and they've been reading it to me now for too long, but it's still a very special piece of my heart. And then after that, I've gone on and to stay creative and just as an outlet, I've self-published now about 15 or 16 other children's books, none of them dad focused like the original one, but these are more, you know, and I take stuff that that happens in my life. If I feel like I got to teach my, my children about patience, you know, I wrote the little book of patience and kindness and bedtime and all sorts of stuff. Um, and, it, and it kind of flows naturally because it's stuff that I'm dealing with. So you know, self-publishing versus traditional publishing is obviously off the hospitality realm, but you can get your stuff to market much quicker and control it as opposed to a traditional publisher where even if you were writing a book, got signed with a contract tomorrow, you'd be lucky if you saw had that book in your hand in two years. It's a very slow moving process and in industry. No, I love it. And I'm about to pick up some because I have my four and six year old. So this will be okay. a great transition. Yeah, uh, But something you said that stuck with me at the very beginning, right? You said your friend had it, but you have it too. The creativity and the wherewithal to see it through, right? Because a lot of people have the idea and oh, I want to do this, but never actually make it happen. So you've got it too. I think it's kind of a special trait that you, know, you just have to have. You have it or you don't. It is. And I noticed that, you know, I didn't realize it when you and I originally spoke that, that this wasn't just a podcast on hospitality, but also mentorship. And if I could leave some advice to any of your listeners is that ultimately you have to go create your own magic. Um, And I'm not saying that um, if you want to be a CEO of whoever, it's going to happen tomorrow. But if you lay out a path thinking backwards from where you want to be, and you you start there and you move backwards with all the things you need to do to get there, you can get there. There is nothing that, that that your listeners can't accomplish. And I say that honestly, like with people, if you really want to publish a book or you really want to open your own bar, do it. Honestly, do it. I mean, yes, you need money, you need this, whatever, but that that can all be done. If if put together a sound business plan that makes sense, there's people that'll throw money at you if for the right opportunity. I'm not saying it's easy by any means. It is it is not. Um, but whatever your path is, I suggest starting at the end, work your way to the beginning and make a list of of goals that you need to do to get there and you can get there. The only thing stopping you is you. I love it. I think, Zach, that's a perfect place for us to end this conversation. You got me fired up. I'm ready to go accomplish 100 things now. So well, you know, I, I appreciate you being on here with me today. Where I, can people connect with you? The best place, honestly, is is probably my Instagram, at Zach Bush 1, Z-A-C-K-B-U-S-H, and the number one. 
I respond pretty much to most DMs. Some crazy ones come in, but I, I try to respond to everyone. Uh, you can email me from there, whether it's about hospitality, live music, bars, restaurants, food, anything, writing. You know, I, I always try to pay it forward. And, you know, I believe you, you, you put good stuff out there. You don't ask for stuff in return. And uh, I'm a big believer in karma. So anyone that needs to reach me, you know where to find me. I love it. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Make sure you connect with Zach. Go check him out at Ball and Chain. Hopefully you're doing some DJ sets there soon. We'll come see no, you. No, 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 no. <laughs> that, that's long retired, but, but thank you. Thank you, Thanks guys. so much, Steve.